0: We are essentially in the indulgence industry, okay? So if the indulgence industry can't indulge and can't celebrate indulging, then there's not going to be an indulgence industry. Everybody likes to indulge. Otherwise, many people agree, you know, life is kind of boring and I don't really want to get up tomorrow. We should be able to indulge in a way that isn't harmful to the environment, and that should be obviously the goal. The luxury industry, its culture, its values, it is about excess, indulgence, exuberance. This is what we're trying to value. It's a celebration of self. It's not economy or efficiency that we're celebrating. It's the very opposite, luxury.
1: On this week's A Blog To Watch Weekly, we give you 185,652,333 reasons to listen, including news of the Rolex crash in China, the reason why watches don't fit
2: you, and the extent of greenwashing in the watch world. We feature a hands-on review of a gem set Casio and discuss the watches we wish were still made while getting an exclusive launch day interview with Mike
1: France talking about the brand new C60 Trident Pro 300, all while in the company of Simon from Escapement 24. Enjoy the show. Greetings and welcome to this week's A Blog To Watch Weekly. We are four wheel drive this week. There are four of us. There is Ariel, David, and we welcome to the show Simon from Escapement 24. Hello, Simon. How are you? Hello, everyone, and pleasure to be here. Thank you for coming. Now, I say four-wheel drive. Ario is celebrating all things four-wheel drive. Wyoming sounds like the name of somewhere that's in the middle of nowhere.
0: Yeah, you could say that. It's a less populated state. Several months ago, last December, we decided to do a giveaway, one of our experience giveaways uh, with Norcane, and we had the strange idea, why don't we take a blog to watch audience member to Jackson Hole, Wyoming? which is a very popular natural destination both in the winter and the summer. It's relatively close to Yellowstone National Park, which is famous for Old Faithful. So they happen to have a retailer here, and that's where Jackson Hole came from. So we like to do these crazy things. We're still trying to find our next giveaway idea for an experience but right now I am here a couple of days early and I did rent a four wheel drive vehicle because you need that out here and we will be joined by a blog to watch audience member who irony of ironies is within driving distance. He happens to live nearby in Idaho so that was just amazingly coincidental (laughs) (laughs) David do you think the next
1: giveaway should either involve an audience member going to Hungary or Glasgow which sounds more dangerous?
3: We should have someone from China come to Budapest or Score or something. Let's compensate for that guy living in the middle of nowhere and right next to the giveaway location. So next year it has to be like at least 6,000 miles in travel.
1: Maybe the giveaway prize should be given to the person that lives furthest away and can prove (laughs) it from a given point that we randomly
0: select on planet Earth. I'm just making a a mental note not to enter any of your competitions in (laughs) (laughs) future. We're not putting uh, Rick in uh, in charge of the uh, the giveaways. It's still going to (laughs) be random. Nice try, but maybe for editorial adventure. Are you suggesting that if I was in charge of the giveaways, I would win them all? Um, <laughs> if by winning you mean getting to meet yourself in Glasgow, then yes. <laughs> ah, good
1: stuff, good stuff. Right, so there is plenty to talk about. We're still in the, there's, there's an area of the world sailing where there's no wind. What's that area called? Uh, It's called the Watchmakers Holiday Month. Yep, that's the one. That's
3: exactly what it is. That's what they
0: call it on the high seas, actually, yeah.
1: (laughs) So we are still in a little bit of a hiatus in terms of loads of new watch releases, but we have had this week on the website a couple of articles that have been more ethereal in their discussion. But before we get to them, even before we get to them, we have a little bit of last week's show, this week to cover, actually it's probably more than just last week's show but we got an answer to our question how many whales in wales actually i've got simon seeing as he's actually in wales to have announced this in his best welsh accent simon you are from yorkshire but how is your welsh accent and my welsh accent is
2: pretty bad actually but um, my children go to a welsh school so they're learning everything in welsh
1: which is very confusing for me so i should have brought one of them on actually to um Give you the answer we'll maybe get one of your children to record the number but before that we will we will play the audio from matt who supplied us with the answer
4: hello rick and ariel this is matt from the spirit of time podcast hope you guys are well just sending a quick message here to follow up on your own most recent episode i think there was um some commentary back and forth on whales and if I recall correctly I think there was some confusion with Ariel as to whether or not Rick you were referring to whales the marine mammal or whales like the sub-geography in in Great Britain right and then as part of that conversation I think there was some additional back and forth joking banter question how many whales could you fit in whales well I have an answer for you so if we assume that the the land mass of whales is just over 8,000 square miles If you think of the largest marine mammal, the largest whale is the blue whale. The average uh, kind of adult full-grown specimen is approximately 100 feet. And if we assume for sake of argument that the typical width or girth, one of these full-grown animals is going to be a minimum of 12 feet on average, not counting the flukes, right? It gives you approximately 1,200 feet. So if you assume that that 1,200 square foot figure is representative, you can fit approximately 185 million 653,333 whales in Wales. Hope that answers the question. Great to hear you guys. Take care.
1: Okay, so there are 185,653,333 whales in Wales if you were to use the landmass. So that's absolutely useful for nothing. It's like the equation of time complication on a Panerai. It is absolutely useful for nothing. I assume Welsh the numbers do sound differently. Is it like the languages up here, as soon as they get to the word microwave, it's stuff you don't understand, stuff you don't understand, microwave. Oh yeah, absolutely. And And then more stuff you don't understand.
2: Yeah, and I rib them mercilessly for it, because I say, (laughs) well, you're not actually speaking Welsh if you're gonna interject with English words all the time. The only thing with reading that number is it's probably gonna take about 45 minutes to get to the end of it um, in Welsh.
0: Well, then we can dedicate an entire show to it, huh? (laughs) Sounds
2: good. Now, I did actually come across a website in preparation for this point, And believe it or not, there is a website called Whales in Wales.
1: All right. And it's Brilliant. for people
2: who go spotting whales and dolphins off the Welsh coast, apparently.
1: All right. It's not, it's not like a mathematical formula, convert your area into the size of whales. No, I couldn't find that on the website,
2: but maybe that does appear somewhere further down.
1: Well, if some computer scientist or HTML programmer type person wants to do is a quick you know, website <laughs> app, <laughs> or whatever it is you need to produce, fax it to us. I don't know. Then uh, give us an give us an area calculator, a ready reckoner for the fax size of us. whales in relation to the size of anything else. Uh, then that would be great. Thank you, Matt, for taking part in that. If you have anything else stupid you want to send the show, then it's podcasts with an s at a blog to watch.com.
0: Love the fan mail
1: uh we got an answer to clickbait so last week ariel you were you were absent and we had uh, andrew from watchfinder on and we did a we ran a little experiment by titling the shows two different things on the two different channels that it goes out on one incredibly clickbaity title and one fairly standard normal title and It turns out that clickbait works. It works to the tune of about 20%. There was a a boost in listenership of the show with the incredibly Rolex clickbait title of 20% and a minor drop in the volume of listeners to the other show when presented with the alternative title. So there you go, clickbait works. So you can expect the word Rolex to appear at least three times in the title of the show, despite the fact that we have absolutely zero Rolex news to cover. (laughs)
0: Ariel, give us
1: your thoughts on clickbait.
0: Well, it's sort of like junk food. You have to do your best not to reach for it. And that's the only way to make clickbait go away. As long as people are clicking on it, clickbait will remain a thing. If there's a promise in a title, chances are there's not going to be a delivery of that promise in the article. That's that's sort of the rule of clickbait. But I'm glad that a little bit of an empirical experiment has allowed you to even further degrade your... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> your, your, your faith in humanity. But, you know, if you need the evidence, it, there it is for you. Well, I, I spent most of last week,
2: um, uh, well, after last week's show, going back and rewriting all the headlines for my YouTube videos because
1: <laughs> Rolex just didn't appear in enough of them. Not only is Simon celebrating clickbait, but he's also celebrating the drop-in of the fact that he has a YouTube channel.
0: <laughs> this is the funny thing. If you take that to the logical extent and you continue to use the term Rolex over and over again... What will happen sooner than later is you'll just get a cease and desist from Rolex. That's what's <laughs> yeah, going to happen. Like yeah. I'm not even joking. Like guaranteed, that's going to happen. So it's sort of funny where like people get as close as possible to it being newsworthy, but it's really not newsworthy. It's just clickbait. And at some point, Rolex is like, you know what? You are uh, using our good name uh, in a way that we do not authorize. I would certainly frame the cease and desist in my
1: office i mean i would stop doing whatever they asked me to do probably because they've probably got quite good lawyers but you know you'd be like yeah excellent got a cease and desist from rolex
0: <laughs> you'd frame it get rid of all the pictures of children just the rolex letter <laughs> it's worth more than yeah. everything combined
1: yeah pictures of dogs pictures of the of the kids all the rest of it off the wall generations
0: and just... of family on the floor rolex letter <laughs> blow it up six thousand percent size (laughs) Well, I I got some interesting news related to Rolex. We can actually talk about Rolex. Oh, excellent. Yeah. What a relief. Drafting the title as we speak. Does it also involve AP, Tudor, and a celebrity? And a huge explosion. Not really, actually. Well, an implosion. I I received multiple articles sent to me on, on essentially the same topic. And it is a drop in the secondary market value of Rolex watches in China. So apparently there is a market decrease. So one statistic uh, that I, rem- I remember seeing was a year-on-year decrease of 46% on the price of a Submariner. That's almost retail. <laughs> Similar decreases uh, basically across the board. They said that the average price decrease was between 20 and 50% on Rolex watches in China they cited a variety of economic reasons one thing is a lot of people selling the Rolex watches they'd purchased i don't think it's surprising uh, to suggest that a lot of people all over the world including China during the pandemic purchased a lot of Rolex product not to wear and now they need money and they're selling it and that is in, and it's, it happens slowly it doesn't happen overnight it's not like the stock market crash of 1929 where everyone sells everything in a day but you know the pendulum is moving in the direction of wait a minute we don't need all these hard assets we need cash this touches on something that we discussed in the past and that is as people purchase all these watches as assets, at some point, like all investments, they want to offload it and recognize some type of return, or at least just liquidate it and put their money in something else. When that happens, the market becomes saturated with a lot of watches, and the market price is going to predictably go down. And so it's going to happen in big roller coaster drops like this. So a one-year change of 46%. It's not surprising because the prices were so inflated to begin with, but we're already starting to see a shift in the direction of Rolex watches becoming closer to the availability that we remember. Uh, At the very least, the aftermarket price is is going to decrease, as it should.
1: Well, that gets my title. Chinese Rolex market crashes. That'll do nicely. Boom. Well, it'll be interesting to see David and hopefully myself are going to be in Geneva next week for Geneva Watch Days. And it will be interesting to see what the general hubbub is over there because I suspect we will quite quickly pick up on whether everyone's beginning to get a little bit worried about what's going on or not. I imagine there will be one or two quite interesting conversations, so we will report on that. Final last week's show this week is by way of an apology because we recorded a show where we talked about the man drawer. And I implied that I only had one man drawer, whereas you lot had lots of them. And I felt that I was, you know, had done quite well and my wife would be proud of me that I didn't have every drawer in the house full of junk. And so I made the mistake of telling her that, only for it to be pointed out that it's not that I only have one man drawer, it's that I live on a farm and therefore have several hundred thousand square feet of sheds all of which are filled with my junk. So the fact that I may only have one drawer in the house <laughs> is slightly tipped over by the fact that I have another 40 acres of farm, which is filled with all of my junk. So, so that's by way of apology and acceptance to my wife, that yet maybe I'm not quite as tidy and as organized as I may have given the impression of.
0: Let's hope that gets you some marriage <laughs> credit, OK, everyone?
1: Uh, Simon, do you have a man drawer?
2: Um, I do have a man drawer uh, right next to my bed, um, in my bedside table, and um, yeah, I've got a a really bad story about that man drawer. Um, I'm not going to go into gory detail, but let's just say, one morning after a particularly drunken night, the night before, I opened that man drawer to find something
0: in there that I really shouldn't have found. (laughs) Wow. This is sounding suspiciously like we're talking about men's underwear, just saying. No, like drawers is the term for underwear. You know, men's drawers? I
3: thought it was somebody's finger or something.
0: No, I, did, I didn't want to go into this in detail, but it was vomit. An awful lot of vomit. <laughs> oh, I was not trying to predict what Simon had in his drawer. I was talking about <laughs> something else. Simon, what's in your drawer? That's your business, my friend. <laughs> so long as
1: it wasn't an Invicta, then you're all right. You yeah, don't worry. You, you're safe on that one. An Invicta. <laughs> David, you had an article this week, Grinding Gears, Why Some Watches Are Uncomfortable and Possible Solutions to the Problem. Yes. Give us the too long, didn't read on this particular article.
3: Right, so the TLDR is that uh, it's a new column that we're having. So um, a lot of the editorial team or basically everyone on the editorial team will have their own column and it's a weekly occurrence. And uh mine is focused uh, on uh, issues with watches and watchmaking and the watch industry and, and so forth. So it's a rent where everyone is invited to join in and uh, share their rents and their takes, which is, you know, what the comment section is all about and all the other articles anyway. But this is just a, a more focused and uh, just great opportunity for that, I think. So the first installment was about comfort watch wearing comfort because I feel like it's a very ubiquitous problem it's a very general issue that affects every price point and virtually every watch category that you can think of whether it's it's a dive watch or a dress watch or whatever else. And so, uh, yeah, that's where we began. And I looked at uh, case sizing and uh, different types of clasps and terrible ergonomic issues with straps and all that. And uh, of course, I remembered Dario's article about the deplorable watch deployment clasps, and I linked to that, which is just solely focused on on the clasp situation. Mine is a little bit more rounded and more universal in the way that it looks at watch-wearing ergonomics and the possible solutions and also a few hints to the reader with regards to what to look for and what to look at when trying on a watch. And, you know, you put it on the boutique and you think, oh yeah, this is manageable. And then you realize it's actual torture. So I'm trying to help folks find a comfy watch.
1: So what is the most comfy watch that you own stroke have ever worn? Can you distinguish such comfort that you can recognise the most comfortable?
3: Uh, absolutely. Uh, that's actually an article in the making and that's about... Well, well, you know what? I will not spoiler it. You know, We will publish that at some point, so I will let the others talk.
1: Jesus, David's got on strike. <laughs> I <Simon, laughs> what's the most comfortable watch that you own? Well, I should probably say that I have such skinny
2: wrists. I mean, look, I've swatted flies that have got thicker wrists than mine. I mean, I think I'm about 6.25 inches. And I've got... I think it's called the Ulna bone you know the thing that sticks out on your wrist well mine seems to be kind of particularly kind of protrudes in a particular you know way and so every single watch that I own is uncomfortable to wear which is a real affliction when you love watches but I've become so used to it that it doesn't even phase me anymore.
1: Pocket watches my friend pocket watches is where you need to go to <laughs> maybe
2: there's a whole different podcast just for that. Yeah I think probably the most comfortable watch in my collection is actually a Dietrich um, so brand designed by a manual dietrich and it's an ot4 and the case is actually particularly ergonomically designed and it has a sort of a suede strap that has a traditional buckle on it and that is really really comfortable for me but i should also probably say what my most uncomfortable watch is and i'm devastated to say that it's my latest acquisition i picked up a doxa sub 600t on the rubber band love the watch bought it just prior to going on holiday on vacation love the look of it but after wearing this thing for two or three hours my wrist feels like someone is about to take it off with an angle grinder
0: that's a shame one of the reasons why a lot of people you know will, will buy a watch and then sell it to try to trade for something equal because there's someone out there whose wrist that's going to be good for right like it's nothing wrong with a watch it's just like a pair of shoes that don't, don't fit you perfectly good something wrong with it just isn't for you I think you should be giving away your Doxa
1: at a really nice price to somebody you know really well, and maybe somebody that invites you onto a podcast to record every now and then, Simon. I wonder (laughs) who that could be. I I, I don't know if I... Mm. I think I could give it a great (laughs) home, that Doxa. It's the white pearl, isn't it? It is
2: not it The one that glows.
3: So, Simon, I, I wonder what is it that makes it uncomfortable for you, specifically? Is it a strap or a case design? I think
2: it's probably the thickness of the case. It's a particularly thick case. It's a heavy watch. And so it feels quite top-heavy, moves around quite a bit on the wrist, as tight as I, as I can get it.
0: So, like, you mentioned the Dietrich was has a single strap structure that basically rides right on top of your wrist. But on the Doxa, because the case back is so low and the lugs are relatively high, given the to no shape, the, the case back sits lower than where the lugs would be. So if the lugs were closer to your wrist, it'd be more comfortable. You've got it, 100%. That's what it
1: is. Where does everybody wear their watches? Because I think this makes a big difference to the number of watches that are comfortable. You know, outside. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, If it's less than 50 metres water resistant, and I can guarantee you that South Wales is the same, if it's less than 50 metres water resistant, I mean, the reason Simon's got the Doxa is to be able to wear his watch outside at all. Oh yeah, 100%. I wear my watch between the bone and my hand, so I wear it quite close if you like to the tips of my fingers and I think that means that watches fit me better because there's a kind of natural hollow there whereas if you wear your watch behind the bone e.g closer to your elbow I I think you need something that fits really nicely in order for the weight to not like Cause the watch to rotate, whereas if I've got a really he- top heavy, top-heavy watch, it kind of catches on the bone mm. and stops it rotating. Where do you wear your watches, David? Are you a behind the bone or in front of the bone?
3: uh behind, so so further up uh, on my forearm.
1: So you wear closer to your elbow than your fingers.
3: Yeah, technically, yes. It's a bit of a it's a bit of a theft to check the time, but you know. At
1: Simon. But Rick, I, I'm really concerned that
2: you're actually wearing your your watch across your knuckles from the way you described <laughs> it. I mean, that doctor of mine actually so could no be I used as for a you. yeah. My, I was going to say my doctor could be used as a knuckle duster, uh-huh. um, but but no, I wear mine just slightly behind the that ulna bone. So you again
1: are closer mm. to your elbow than your fingers. Correct. And Ariel, I also wear it in the proper
0: position. Oh, oh, I see. Oh. You guys have been pejorative <laughs> about it. The proper oh, position. <laughs> it's okay. There's others out there like you, and, and you'll you'll be you'll be brothers in uh, in knuckle dusting.
1: I have never owned or tried a watch on any watch that I can think of that I've ever found uncomfortable to wear because of where I wear it. So I think. Basically, what I've discovered is the universe. I'm like the universal joint. It fits everything.
0: You know what? If you had the experience I, I've had, <laughs> and you've had the number of just painful, sharp, jagged, ugly things, you'd be like, yeah. So you you could, you could had a lucky run, and I just I hope for your <laughs> sake you never run into the any of the, uh, the really, really sharp ones. I am realizing I may just have told a
1: fib there, and actually the Timex Q, just because it rips the hair out of your arm with every movement
0: of the wrist. <laughs> yes, we've been there.
1: So long as you stay absolutely still, then the Time XQ is really comfy. But if you actually want to move, then I think probably the Time XQ, the, it's, it's the hair-pinching bracelets. They're the ones I would find the most I've had I've
0: had certain watches from really nice brands that I have had to decline reviewing because they had what I call torture bracelets. Whether they pull hair or they cut you while you're wearing them. This is really what it goes back to. Not enough R&D. Okay, so many things t- are just designed in CAD today. It looks like it makes sense. So real-world tests anything. That's why all these dials end up looking ridiculous with these tiny little designs. Some designers got this relatively large canvas in front of them in the form of a computer screen. You know, designing little tiny details... Like, never really thinking this thing needs to be reduced how many hundreds of percentage, you know, just like to its small dial size. And then you're looking at the thing and like, who's supposed to read all this stuff? Well, on a computer screen, you can. So the point is there's just not enough, you know, prototyping where they make things and they look at it and they say, huh, does this make sense? And this is outside of rare situations like rolex and some of the like swatch group brands that really put a lot of effort into things because they're like you know they're all about the industrialization most brands just don't take the time they're like oh uh, we're gonna do it in cad we're gonna get one prototype just look okay oh the case doesn't work it's not comfortable well it's too expensive and takes too much time to fix that so whatever move on i've worn thousands and thousands and thousands of watches the cross section i've had is a pretty good you know just look at the entire market there's some really comfortable things out there the ones that aren't are because of cheap parts. These aren't. There isn't like ten people designing the the, the same bad part. There's a small number of suppliers that make these deployment buckles that everybody buys from. So of course they're all going to be terrible if they're all <laughs> being made by the same supplier. Is there a watch
1: brand that when you see them say, "Oh, would you like to review X, Y, and Z?" You're like, "Yeah, that's going to be a comfy watch because I know they're going to have thought about it."
0: Yeah, Casio. They they focus on comfort, ergonomics around the wrist. Across the board, I'm not saying everyone who watches is perfect, but like I, I, I don't remember any situation where, be like, boy, that Casio is really uncomfortable. It doesn't matter how big they are; they always, they just, they do it well. Like they know what's up; they have it down to a very good science, and you got to respect them for it. Uh,
3: yeah, I think I think the biggest issue is, is with straps actually, and not with bracelets, uh, especially leather straps. But sometimes it's also true for rubber, uh, is that they are way too stiff around uh, just where the lugs are. So, what happens is that the straps want to go yeah. straight down and not wrap around your wrist. And so, it's, it's basically a day long pinching movement that is just terrible. So, I feel like, again, my, my, my advice is that you go to a boutique or you, or, you know, if you're buying a used watch, whatever, you do up the, the, the strap in a way that would be your size. And then you look okay. at the watch without putting it on and see the shape that it takes off. I mean, your wrist has a cross section that is like a squished letter O basically and mm-hmm. usually the watches take up the exact opposite shape sometimes it's like an actual V and I'm like that's not the shape of the wrist at all so your wrist is constantly and your skin is constantly fighting the stiffness of the strap and that makes it super uncomfortable so I feel like that is the one thing I would, I would get rid of
1: there's, there's clearly a level of suffering going on in David and Ariel's life Simon that I've just not appreciated Well it's um, obviously all you know for the passion of the hobby but it
2: reminds me a little bit <laughs> it's of my, the passion. my wife we suffer yeah.
0: for you. Suffer so you for don't it. Have to. <laughs> but yeah, my, my wife has this um, enormous
1: collection of shoes, and you know they. So... Uh, Simon, Simon, you shouldn't be trying the shoes on. Okay? Well, I've never gone that far,
2: but she she tells me that some of them are horrendously uncomfortable to wear, and you know so much so that she has to take them off as soon as she gets through the door or something. And I said, well, why do you wear them then? A shoe is something that should be comfortable. And she just looks at me like I'm an alien because, you know, <laughs> these things are diamond-encrusted Jimmy Choo's or something, uh-huh. you know, and that you should just worship them.
0: Sure. It's a good point. There's that there's that person out there that will give up comfort in exchange for uh, some type of visibility. And then there's the more practical person who's like, well, I would never leave the house in a pair of uncomfortable shoes. doesn't matter what, you know, what it looks like. And that's just two different camps. And I mean, I think with shoes, we can all agree, you know, we want to, wear comfortable shoes we want to wear comfortable watches but there's certain beautiful designs that some people will just put up with
1: you want to send us a voicemail about the most uncomfortable comfortable any comments then again send us a voicemail podcast at our blog to or get in touch with me
0: directly on instagram at, at rick TikTok. i wrote this a while ago what caused me to write it is there's a lot of language in the marketing right now related to sustainability environmentalism and a lot of related concepts and i mean who who's against any of the things who's like yeah i hate environmentalism no one but i think the problem is is that sometimes these terms are co-opted by marketers and they they might trick people into believing that they are buying something which is sustainable when in fact it's promoting it's like when, when when with like a drug it's like may help reduce the symptoms of it's like what well, does that really do anything so I, I what i try to do is i try to like outline the various types of approaches brands take to environmentalism, sustainability, from packaging to materials they use for the cases to things that the corporate structure might do. And I just wanted to give sort of a cross section of what these things are and which of them have an impact on the environment, which really don't. And I think that's important for a lot of people that buy into these concepts. I mean, a lot of people want to do right by their their consumerism, right? They want to support companies that share their values. But it's too easy in a lot of regards just to say we support your values and kind of pretend um, you know, greenwashing is a common term when a company pretends to be a lot more pro-Earth, you know, a, a company that, you know, mines fossil fuels, will spend a little bit of money on the side trying to, you know, do something to clean the environment. Of course, it doesn't offset the larger impact, but it appears as though they're doing something, and that, you know, that helps from a, from a public relations standpoint. So I think there are some very positive things happening out there. Obviously, these are good causes. But I think that since we're spending so much money, it's worth it for people to understand exactly uh, what brands are doing, what measures they're taking, what these materials are, and sort of, you know, uh, a broad overview of what it all means.
1: Watches are fundamentally such a small product that, you know, what real difference does it make when a watch brand does something with their materials in terms
0: of environmentalism because there's not a lot of material there in the first place it doesn't it's mar- it, look it's again it's it's when you're buying an expensive item you're guilty about it it's a common thing when we have a sort of you know class inequality. You you buy something that someone else can't have and it's nice. You feel bad about it. So we make these justifications. We rationalize it. Oh, well, you know, this money is going to help someone uh, someone else uh, somewhere else. You know, this company donates back or they're doing something good. This is a very common strategy that allows people to feel better about a purchase that they want to make. And um, it's, it's a big part of our economy. So I think that it's less about an actual authentic problem with watches and their environmental impact. They are, in fact, relatively low environmental impact when it comes down to it, you know, compared to many other industries. So that's not really a big problem, but it's how do people vote with their dollars? If, they're, if they care about an issue and they want to vote with their consumer dollars, is there something they can do? And Are they actually buying a product that advances that, that concern or that value? Um, so I think that's really what's going on. I mean, the marketing
1: of watches and the retailing of watches, must be the single biggest environmental drain of the watch industry in comparison to the actual manufacture. I mean, you walk down any high street with a load of boutiques on it and look at the number of lights they've got switched on and the number of people that are going out there and the exhibitions and the conferences and the presentations and the media being flown everywhere. It would be interesting to see what the CO2 output is from selling them as opposed to making them actually. It's because I would imagine a greater proportion of the CO2 produced in the life of a watch comes from the actual retail of the watch as opposed to the manufacture of the watch.
0: This is a self-defeating argument because we are essentially in the indulgence industry. Okay, so if the indulgence industry can't indulge and can't celebrate indulging, then there's not going to be an indulgence industry. Everybody likes to indulge. Otherwise, many people agree, you know, life is kind of boring and I don't really want to get up tomorrow. So yes, we should be able to indulge in a way that isn't harmful to the environment. And that should be obviously the goal. But to sort of say everyone, the goal is to use less, don't use as much electricity I, I think this is, this is not progress. Progress is us being able to use more, but in a way that doesn't harm our neighborhoods. Yes. So you know, I don't think that you know not using as much energy is anything other than sort of a temporary Band-Aid. And I don't think the luxury industry, its culture or its values are related to not using. It is about excess, indulgence, exuberance. This is what we're trying to value. It's a celebration of self. It's not economy or efficiency that we're celebrating. It's the very opposite luxury.
1: So David very briefly Simon very briefly any particular thought on your own experience or interaction with you know what guilt do you feel towards the environment when you buy or shop for a luxury watch David?
3: Well I feel like due diligence is necessary so I look at for example you know even when I was writing this Casio piece about the cheapest diamond set watch I looked for any statements from Casio of all all brands about the Sourcing of their diamonds and they actually rated on their website that they are from UNICEF certified clean sources. So I feel like looking at those and not just going for like, Oh, this looks fun. Here's my money, but just actually just a quick Google search or something like that might lead you to some place or another. And I'm not saying I've, I've looked super deep into the whole thing, but I feel like I've done at least some diligence and that that is what I would recommend for everyone to do if I may be so bold.
1: And Simon, I mean, we live in a wet country, so we're not necessarily as averse to global warming as we probably should be, but- No, uh,
2: no, and absolutely. And and kind of making watches out of recycled cardboard just really wouldn't work um, where we are here. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I spent 20 plus years in marketing and a lot of that time as a marketing copywriter. And so my job is actually to write the corporate and social responsibility policies for a lot of the companies that I worked with. And, you know, (laughs) It was my job to make these people sound better than they were, um, and that the efforts they were making were often greater than they really were making. This happens in all sorts of industries, but I think you know if you were actually to do a deep dive into what some of these companies are doing versus what they claim they're doing, I think you'd find perhaps two slightly different stories.
1: good or well, let's talk about some watches. Right, first up this week, we're going to hear a little clip from an interview I did with Mike France. We've got a little bit of a scoop here. It's going to be the first chat about the C60 Trident Pro 300. Brand new watch for Christopher Ward. We're not going to talk a lot about it. Uh, Mike does most of the talking himself, so he will tell you all about it. But this is a new line, a kind of 3.5 fill-in in the Trident range in advance of a big new launch that is coming reasonably soon. So let's just uh, tune into that for a moment. We are joined by the esteemable Mike France from christopher ward mike how are you i'm
5: um, very well richard how are you
1: not too bad last time we spoke it was on the cusp of the release of the Aquitaine. How how is that gone for you so far
5: really well i'm pleased to report yes it seems to have been very well received and uh, particularly gmt brought out a second color the black which has immediately gone into the bestsellers list so uh, we're very very pleased Good, but
1: for today, on what hopefully is release day, if all of this goes according to plan, you're here to speak to us about a new release. So tell us a little bit about the watch that I have sitting in front of me. I have a pre-production model, which is ever so slightly different from what I understand, but not significantly so. What is it that I have sitting in front of me?
5: You have sitting in front of you a C60 Trident Pro 300. We're releasing today three sizes: 38, 40, and 42 mil. It's fair to say it's it's a a sort of a new generation um, trident, and uh, there's a fascinating story around it in some ways, uh, which starts about two years ago, mid um, mid pandemic, when we were um, considering what we were going to do to follow. Trident three, with uh, not surprisingly Trident four, T four as we called it. <laughs> we nothing. Exactly.
1: It. The Swiss watch world is nothing if not imaginative.
5: Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's you know, we're so far ahead of the curve. It's true. <laughs> so um, T four was being discussed, debated, and as ever, we wanted to push the, uh, the boat out. And the original planned release date for Trident four was going to be May twenty three. Was part of the the research and was part of the product development. We're very fortunate, as many of your listeners will know, to have our own dedicated forum, the Christopher Ward Forum. And we use them often um, to seek advice, to seek ideas, to test things. And we thought we'd ask them what would Trident be about for them and how would we create the perfect dive watch. They engaged on a very, very, very extensive piece of work for us with hundreds of people giving us feedback. And we consolidated all of that and it consolidated into about four or five different things and one of the things that came back of course was actually the current Trident collection is fantastic and why are you bothering to change it (laughs) meanwhile something else crossed our development desks which we'd been working on previously and given up on but found a new route towards and that's become now the planned very 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 big new release for next May so we pushed the release of Trident 4 out to may 24 now so you can expect a new generation of tridents uh, in may 24 but the feedback from these guys was so brilliant in some ways and it chimed with a lot of the things we're looking to do with t4 Mm -hmm. and so we decided in a way to do a t3.1 which then became trident pro 300 you'll be the better judge than i of this um, because you've you've actually seen the model but um, it's a i think a really excellent move on and will give people some inkling as to where T4 may well end up.
1: My first impressions of the watch are it is a, a fabulous looking piece of engineering. I always judge these things based on opening the box in front of my family and <laughs> seeing how quickly they grab it and try to try it on themselves rather than just saying, oh no, not another watch that's just arrived in. For to look at. And actually I was there with several members of my family at the time. And both this and one of the white dial C sixty threes also arrived at the same time. And I expected my family to gravitate to that, being a bit of a neater, smaller, more demure watch. But actually to a person they all went for the the new 300 so yeah really impressed with this Uh, i think this is a gonna be well received watch uh, for sure it does some really interesting things in the way it captures the light in terms of some of the facets that are on the numerals in particular i don't know if anyone's noticed this but it plays a little bit of an optical illusion Uh, if you hold it in the light just right, but I'll let people who buy it or get to handle it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Basically, it creates its own inner circle within the black matte dial, which is really quite funky. All of those who are fans of debates about logos will be delighted with this one as well I think <laughs> yeah. and those that like their dates at 6 o'clock will also be delighted with this watch. So what is your
5: expectations then? In some ways Richard it's at our entry level only because we've been able to bring the, the price down because the, the key thing that came out of the research and the key thing that our forum members wanted us to do with the dive watch was make it slimmer. To make it slimmer than the 600 it meant we had to reduce the water resistance level from 600 meters down to Seamaster level, hardly a, hardly a, a problem uh, of yeah. <laughs> 300 meters. So 300 meters, somebody tell me that's something like 28 and a half London buses deep. Um, so you're probably likely to explode before you watch does. It's 15% slimmer. We've taken nearly two millimeter of the height of the 42. So it's now coming in at 11 and a half millimeters. So it's a very slim dive watch. It's got, the second thing they wanted was more loom by extending deepening the indexes we've managed to create about anything up to 20 percent more loom they wanted an exhibition case back so all of the all of the 300s have got an exhibition case back and you've also improved the bracelet and this is a significant improvement on the bracelet i think we've always been quite renowned for our bracelets they've always been superb quality one of the criticisms has been that we've always had pins other than screws. So with the Aquitaine, we launched our first screw-linked bracelet, but it had the screws on both sides, which renders it quite difficult to actually change the links without taking it in to an expert. We persevered and wanted to go to a single screw bracelet. Our bracelet manufacturer initially said it is not possible to produce to the tolerances that we required. The tolerances we required to get to this are 0.3 microns tolerance. That's a third of the the size of a human hair. Our engineers and designers kept on and on and on. There might be others, so I need to be careful in what I say here, but Rolex uh, have mastered this, and because Rolex have mastered it, Tudor have it. The Rolex finish is excellent. Uh, Tudor isn't as good as the Rolex finish. Ours is somewhere between the two, but we are almost unique, along with the Rolex group, in having this approach to bracelets. In addition to the brace, we've added two millimeters to the micro adjustment, and we've also, we were one of the pioneers of a quick release, both in straps and then in bracelets, and we've further improved the, the quick release uh, bracelet. As you will know, dive watches probably something like 60 to 65% of them are bought on bracelets. And so having a really, the bracelet is, a, is one of the, the heroes of this watch. But then as you rightly say, the aesthetics of the watch, it's got the, just the first Trident, have twin logo, the balance, our signature six o'clock date window balances with the logo perfectly now. Uh-huh. We've got this steel insert inside the ceramic bezel, which I think just Gives which p- those who know our brand will know that with the uh, the C60 Tide, which is one of uh, one of our best-selling watches, uh, which released about a year ago, that was the first time we put the steel insert, and it was so well-loved by everybody. We've now brought it into the uh, 300. And so there's a aesthetic change here, which is, I think, very pleasing, but there's also some really interesting technical changes. And all of this brings the price down by £100 at entry level. All $38, 40 and forty-two, as with always with us, they're all the same same price. So the the, the entry level in sterling for this is um, six nine five on a mm-hmm. rubber or a uh, tied strap, and uh, uh, that's 850 uh, dollars in the US. Yeah, it's a it's
1: going to be a difficult package to beat. To be fair, I don't wish to kind of blow smoke up your butt.
5: Feel free, feel free. Blow as much, <laughs> blow as much as you like. Yeah?
1: It is a particularly impressive piece of work for the price concerned. You do definitely notice that it's a slimmer case. It does definitely wear, I mean, I don't mind wearing thick case watches. They suit my wrist fine, as do slimmer ones, but there will be those for which a slimmer case is really what they're after, and this definitely provides that. And for the like one person on the planet that really needs the 600 meters over the 300 meters water resistance, I'm sure they can shop elsewhere within Christopher Ward's catalogue.
5: Well, the, the Trident Pro 600 is still there.
1: <laughs> it's a it's a really impressive uh, watch. All the best with the launch, uh, which should be imminent. If you know, I think you most folk will be able to download this show from six o'clock in the morning, European time. And I think the launch is 10 a.m. So we've awesome. got we've got we've got a, we've got a four out four hour scoop on uh on this i suppose (laughs) so for for what it's worth but yeah all the best with this release and i look forward to seeing what comes next the next
5: big date after this is going to be in october when um we will be launching um a, a new model that um i don't want to overstate it but it's it's um it could well be so I would argue it will be our finest hour.
1: Is that a hint? Is that some sort of war, Second World War-themed hint? Uh, no.
5: You, 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 no? So
1: <laughs> <No. laughs> you did this last time with the Aquitaine. But, it's but, like, but is it, there a burgundy involved?
5: But it is a hint. And... Uh, another oh. second we'll right okay And we do like to surprise people um, we like you to did. surprise ourselves as well <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what we're launching in, in October is that uh, it's really going to surprise a lot of people
1: well I look forward to that thank you for joining us on today's show Mike my pleasure oh and by the way you can find all of this at ChristopherWard.com presumably you certainly can <laughs> <laughs> good stuff
5: Cheers.
1: we're not going to talk a lot about the watch because frankly I'm the only one that's seen it but I think the more interesting thing, just for a quick chat, especially in light of, you know, our chat about sustainability, etc., is Christopher Ward are one of these brands that, A, have kind of led the charge a little bit, particularly in terms of packaging and reducing uh, the packaging, but also in terms of trying to fill in the gap at a kind of quality and price level. So it's... It's not about their goods being cheap throwaway. They're just expensive enough to be as high a quality as possible that you could keep a Christopher Ward forever uh, as opposed to buying, I don't know, something that's fairly disposable fashion that probably doesn't cost that much less than, for example, this new one, which is coming at about 700 quid. Uh, Are we seeing brands actually springing up Ariel that are really focused on environmentalism from day one, as opposed to, oh, we've been around for a hundred years, it's now time as we say that we got a bit of greenwashing
0: Yeah, but not in the way that we like I mean, we're talking about, uh, you know companies that would have been like a daniel wellington in terms of the product quality so what i'm seeing a lot is brands that have solar powered watches you know again not new technology but being like oh solar powered watches you know the solution to our environmental issues like (laughs) you know so you have silly stuff like this and it's like look i mean between casio and seiko and of course citizen who started eco drive you know i we we have a lot enough discussion on on sort of the solar-powered watches. Any of these other little companies, just not interested. Look, you know, uh, these are not high-carbon output types of endeavors. You know, the the factories are relatively minor. They don't use a huge amount of electricity. Uh, Still, a lot is done by hand. Again, just given the size of these companies, they're not really big emitters or anything like that, but it's true, they can do a lot with their dollars. So I have yet to see a company that, I think in a serious way, sort of tries to connect itself to environmentalism but I think it's because it's just hard because there aren't that many ways to cut it wasn't it's not like you know like you know watch cases or something like that were just so damaging and somebody was able to innovate like they are already pretty lean I think what we're going to start to see is companies that are telling their stories a little bit more I know companies like Mundane have a factory that is supposed to be actually carbon neutral where they mm-hmm. it's all solar powered and stuff like that so there's a couple of stories like this you do get like so, Stuff like this in, in in Switzerland, but this is a rich world uh, issue. Um, only very rich companies that have you know money to invest in this right now we're doing it and a lot of it's for vanity let's be honest they're just spending a lot of money to sound cool be like yeah ours is the most environmentally friendly like it does make you sound cool at parties but it's it's economically not always in your interest you know that a lot of i mean more and more i guess laws are supporting it but you know where i live in california uh, if you want to be more green you basically have to pay for it yourself and so I think what we what we can hope is that as companies reinvest, build new factories and things like that, they continue to go more green. But again, in Switzerland, because it's just a part of the Swiss culture, that's really already happening.
1: Cool. Well, go and check out Ariel's article. Go and look on the website at the latest from Christopher Ward. And, you know, like always, tell us what you think. Drop us a message to the show. David, lead us through the... Watch of the moment, the diamond-encrusted, and Chris is probably overselling it a bit, but the diamond-encrusted Casio. We talked about it briefly last week, but you've got a full review on the watch.
3: Yeah, as expected, the article has received a lot of views and a lot of traction and uh, great reactions from the audience. I just think it's it's an awesome and uh, contemplative piece, if anything, because I just like watches that make me wonder like how did this actually just come to be you know and, and yeah. some of the watches are just so basic you have to go back 60 years to think about like how did the Submariner come to be you have to be thinking with the mind of someone who was designing watches back in the 1950s right and ever since then not much has changed with that watch if I'm being brutally honest but this watch is just so out of this world it's so weird in some ways that I feel like it's it's entertaining and when I wrote my review of the Constantin Chaikin Joker A number of years ago, I wrote that fun watches are only really worthy of attention if they are actually good watches on the side as well. So they have to be comfortable, they have to be legible, they have to be functional, not just be a a weird object that happens to tell the time in some weird way. I mean, there are very few exceptions to this rule. And this little Casio that retails for around $70, it it, it does all those things. It's comfortable, it's nice to wear, it looks good on the wrist, it's, it's highly legible. And it happens to have two tiny, well, industrial quality, you know, diamonds uh, set. And even the front glass is shaped like a diamond or faceted like a diamond to mimic the shape of a a precious stone. And so there you are wearing a $35 watch that tells the time accurately and legibly and yet has this fun element where you think to yourself, how did this come to be? Were they trying to just poke fun at the big brands who throw diamonds and, you know, where dials with diamonds can cost thousands of dollars and it's still just a dial. <laughs> and here the entire watch is $35. So they just wanted to sell more and they just put two diamonds because they could. So who knows? But I like looking at the watch and thinking about this. But I'm not sure what sort of reaction it gets from you guys.
1: I was happy to say it. I want to know how long it took you to get the photograph of your watch telling the same time as your T-shirt. Yeah, isn't that, is that, a, is that cool, right? <laughs> There was a few people asking if there's any significance to the 200750.
3: is because a block to watch was established in 2007, so that's why we chose that.
1: I I agree with you. I would be interested to have been a fly in the wall of the marketing meeting where they were spitballing about what they were going to do next. And it was like, yeah, we've got, we'll release a new watch. Oh, you know what we should do? I was at a Patek launch last night. It was really <laughs> nice. And they've got diamonds in the world. We should do that. Have we not got someone around here in the tooling section that's got some spare diamonds going that they use for cutting things? Yeah, yeah. we'll go down and get Davy, and he'll bring us up a cu- Let's just, st- Davey, stick a couple of those diamonds into that watch. Let's see what it looks like.
3: And how much we can sell it for. I know, you know, if we can sell it for $35. It's still like a <laughs> I,
0: I have a diff- I have a slightly different theory. You want to hear my theory? Yeah, yeah, go for it. First of all, I have to say, you know, I think like all of us, we just utterly love it when... Absolutely we see these, like, very strange Japanese products that, like, we don't know how they came about. Japan is full of them. Just going shopping in Japan is just the most fantastic thing. So what if this happened, okay? They just got a bunch of industrial diamonds... And they're like, okay, everyone, we need to use this for something. Now, we know we can't set diamonds in any of the G Shocks because they're plastic <laughs> and you can't set diamonds in there. What can we set diamonds in? What of our metal watches? Th- that's where you set diamonds. Oh, well, our metal cases are really thin. We can't actually do that. Oh, are you sure? Let's look at all of them. So they're sitting there looking through all their metal watches. <laughs> they're like, oh, there's a space you could put a diamond. Oh, there too, right? All right. Let's put two here. Oh, we could change the beds a little bit. That's not too expensive to okay that, that <laughs> supplier is cool we can get them to do that and they just like okay we got these diamonds and we're using this many and we hey, every, on top of that we got a slightly different bezel made so more product differentiation everyone puts their thumbs up and they're like let's just throw it in the market and see what happens you never know it could have been a joke somebody could be designing <laughs> yeah. these things in the middle and and like they got drunk one night and then like someone said like hey i'm gonna put diamonds on the, you know the 35 dollar watch and like yeah you should do it and then the mark and then like you know the the marketing guys like hey does anybody here have any good ideas and then they point <laughs> to the guys the joke and then he tells them the idea about the diamonds on this and then the marketing guy's like yeah let's do it
2: but i just think that i think the design team on this one i think we're probably watching stranger things because i think this watch is definitely from that era and um and then just thought how can we make it even crazier we'll, we'll stick a couple of diamonds in it but I mean, it's just, you know, they're just kind of placed on that watch in with no rhyme or reason for them being there. But in all seriousness, though, I mean, it, you know, if you look at a lot of Japanese domestic products, certainly, you know, uh, they have some things over there which, you know, seem pretty crazy to us, but actually in their domestic market, you know, are quite acceptable. I mean, like some of the microcars and things like this that they used to produce.
1: Go and check out that article. The comment section is particularly active. We're coming to the close of the show today and I thought we would look at a section, an article that Ariel did called No Longer Made, the Louis Monet Jules Verne Instrument Watch. And this is not so much to look at this particular watch, but to touch on and to get feedback from you, the audience, about which watches do you wish they still made? I have one very particular watch that I wish was still made. But uh, to lead us into this, Ariel... Tell us why, when you were thinking about watches that are no longer with us, why was this the one that sprung to mind?
0: Well, I mean, I think the series is really about the various watches that I encounter or I I get myself or I'm just able to get my hands on that represent this era of watches that we could easily forget. You know, people know so much about like obscure Rolexes from the 70s, but they barely remember watches from the last 10 or 15 or 20 years of which there are many. And so it's really about going back and remembering these. A lot of these are available in the market, some of them are not at, you know, decent prices. So for me, the interesting thing is that you can acquire some of this cool stuff for, you know, a, a, I don't want it's still a watch, it's still a luxury item, but you know, not not insanely inflated prices. And so I think that's what's exciting to me. I don't know that a lot of these watches ever need to come back. I don't really think that's the point of it. I think that we've seen so much stuff come back. I think I can be like, hey, you know what? There's been enough things coming back. But these are still good. You know, We can go and get these watches. They're on the market. So for me, that's sort of the larger point of the No Longer Made you know, column series. For me, it's the Zenith Doublematic.
1: It's just a watch I have longed over for many moons.
0: I've still never seen one in real life You haven't seen a double matic. I almost bought a solid gold one. You know that I was I was uh, $7,000. That's what that brand new. It's a bargain in the Caribbean. It's just (laughs) it's just a watch that does everything. The double matic was cool. Yeah. But look, here's the thing. When they don't make more and more and more of them, you have to wonder why. Right. Because they love making the same thing again and again and again. Right. But when they don't, they're like, why? Maybe it's because it was just too expensive to make, which means it's cool. Or maybe because they never got to work, which means you want to avoid it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Ariel, you're tearing away my dreams. I'm such
0: a pragmatist. I'm sorry, I did it again.
1: (laughs) Simon, yourself? Yeah, I think,
2: look, there's been such a move towards kind of uh, resurrecting some of the classic vintage watches um, going back over the decades. That I think really, if there was much more out there that really needed to come back, we'd have probably seen it by now. David, have
1: you got a decision?
3: There, there was one that Breguet used to make that was that had a moon phase and a really nice classic dial and had a hand engraved B on the rotor in, uh, in relief, actually. And uh, I thought, you know, that, that's, that's, that's a watch I've been looking for to to acquire and it's really difficult to find. So maybe that, it's a very personal choice, but it's my choice.
0: I got, I got one I want coming back. The the late the late 90s, early 2000s, Bombamassier, Cape Land. For me, it was the right mixture of sports and classiness. This was an era where I loved because that was very popular at the time to take basically a sports watch but give it sort of a classy gentleman's edge. Mont Blanc at the time was doing a lot of that. Cartier, of course, was doing a lot of that. I thought that the, the Bombamassier, Cape Land, there was a bunch of different ones, were great
3: given that we are living, living at a time when everything gets relaunched uh, sooner or later, Ariel, you, you know, it's going to happen. Don't worry. I think I think you could sneak into their HQ, spend a the week there, nobody would notice, and just quietly relaunch their collection.
0: Yeah, I think there's like six people working there right now, so yes, they would notice.
2: <laughs> <laughs> just to jump in there, though, I think the Speedmaster Mark II is probably one of the ones that I wish had never been discontinued. I think that's a, just such a classic. Good I really point.
0: Like see that one Good point. But I, I have one of those. It's really great. I love that watch. Oh well, Simon can swap it for
1: a doxer that he doesn't like. If you're interested. <laughs> there you <laughs> go. <laughs> great stuff. Well, thank you for listening to this week's show. We have lots coming over the next fortnight or so because it's Geneva Watch Days. David is certainly going to be there. I am hoping to be there. And there is going to be lots of stuff coming up. So I have no idea what next week's schedule is going to hold. There may be one episode, there may be six, uh, who actually can tell. So do tune in next week and uh, see what's happening. We'll have all the latest coverage. Do check it, the website, keep an eye on Instagram and all the rest of it. Simon, thank you very much for joining us. Where can people find you on the internet? so you can find me on insta
2: at escapement24 so escapement to the numbers 24 and also the same on youtube
1: excellent david where can people find you on the internet
3: it's abtw underscore david
0: ariel where 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 are you located i'm on the on instagram i'm ariel uh, to watch and i also want to say thank you to simon and i want to say everyone all these weeks of not so much new watch news after Geneva watch days, there's going to be a ton of it. So just you wait. Yep, yeah, there is plenty to coming. The,
1: the hiatus is well and truly about to finish. The dam is about to burst. So thanks very much for joining us. Uh, join us again next week. Goodbye. Bye everyone. Bye everyone. Take care.
2: Bye. So Mia, you can fit 185,653,333 whales in Wales. But how do you say that in Welsh?
0: This is how. Mine uh in count to Oost Dig Pimp Million, Quit Camp to Tree Meal, Tree Camp to a tree dig tree morphie lord Mount Comri.
4: I o do you guys to be Rolex a Mariner?
2: What, and you want me to buy you a Rolex and Mariner? of
4: Mariner? Its course.